This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's continuing mission. To explore strange new worlds. To seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before. What is it about space that fascinates us? As a species, we've always looked to the stars for answers, right? For guidance, for signs that we are either miraculously alone or we're not. And this was way before the idea of traveling above Earth's atmosphere even existed. But today, space has a new frontier, capitalism. The goal of building colonies on planets like Mars and around those colonies, business ecosystems with everyone's favorite coffee franchise, 24-hour convenience stores, and maybe even studio apartments. Who knows? Over the last decade, billionaires like Elon Musk, Richard Branson, and Jeff Bezos have pumped the equivalent of some developing nations' GDPs into their respective space ventures. You can scoff at the idea all you want, but you can't deny that our ability to explore space has evolved at breakneck speed because of these elite few. And if we've come this far in 2021, where will we be 10 years from now? My name is Arvind Yuvraj and this is Futurescapes, an audio time capsule that's not just a prediction of the world to come, but a record of the time that we are in now, with early technologies that could one day change everything. Yeah, so but remember, although you're only hearing a lot more about space travel because of the billionaires, but actually we've been talking about space travel since uh, 1957 uh, when uh, Yuri Gagarin went to space for the first time. That's space travel. That's the voice of Professor Emerita Datosri, Dr. Mazlan Othman. She's an astrophysicist whose work has pioneered Malaysia's participation in space exploration. She was appointed Director General of the Malaysian National Space Agency and in September 2017, Professor Mazlan was named Director of the International Science Council or ISC Regional Office for Asia and the Pacific. Professor Mazlan is here to talk about space travel and exploration and what that's going to look like in 2031 and beyond. Of course, uh, a lot of people now are to, to it's a no-brainer. Everybody takes it for granted. We all can travel to near space, meaning up to the International Space Station. But you remember, we went to the moon in 1969. Uh, as, as the Americans say, been there, done it. You know? And then for some reason, for a whole host of reasons, they then decided to, to do other things. But now they are planning to go to the moon again. Uh, we know, of course, there's always been space travel, but it looks like uh, Elon Musk says he can bring people to Mars, as far as Mars. And then, um, although Richard Branson is only promising that he'll take us to the edge of space, meaning around about 100 kilometers, not as much fun, uh, but at least it 
qualifies you, uh, you know, legally as an astronaut, a private astronaut. Bezos is the same. He will go soon. Uh, but he, it is only to near space. Huh? And there are other companies uh, doing the same thing. But I think the real glamour or uh, the real difference is if we are able to leave the Earth's orbit. So if you're talking about space travel as in leaving the Earth's orbit, uh, by 2031, I foresee that Elon Musk might, might have made several uh, rocket attempts I'm not sure he is able to do that with humans on board because uh, going to the International Space Station as he did, you know, for a while, bringing cargo uh, is not so difficult. But when you want to uh, design the spacecraft so that it can take human beings, now that's another question altogether. It takes a lot more. So by 2031, I think we'll be well on the way to uh, knowing how we might get there, but I'm not sure we would have got there. We, we, I'm not sure we can get to Mars. But having said that, I think we might be able to go to the moon, which is much nearer. And you know, the Americans have done it before. Of course, they can do it again. The only difference this time is that there's there's China, there's India wanting to, you know, uh, join the sort of race. Uh, there's the European countries, and who knows, even a country like UAE uh, might want to join in the fray. Mars, it will be maybe 15 years, human beings landing on Mars. In fact, 15 years ago, we, we were already saying that the person, the first person who's going to land on Mars is already born, because that's the ideal sort of age. My grandchildren will definitely be able to see someone on Mars. Is this privatization of space travel good or bad, you think? Because it seems like more people are engaged and interested in space because of celebrity figures like Elon Musk. Yeah. But yeah. it also has the slight smell of, um, I, I want to monopolize space, you know? Yeah. That thing about wanting to monopolize space, I don't buy that. But uh, good or bad, I can, I can tell you. Good is because when private sector undertake something, they're always looking at the bottom line, they're doing things very efficiently. And, you know, NASA has always had a bad image when it comes to contracts. You know, like any government contract, they cost 30 to 40% more. It was a purely uh, private sector contract. So I have a lot of faith in private sector. And of course, Elon Musk is not uh, only investing in his own money. He, he did in the very beginning, hundreds of millions, but he's also getting support from the government. But the government, last NASA, instead of putting it back into their own pockets, um, they're giving away to private sector to do the best uh, that they can. So to me, that's good, you know. And in the private sector, uh, you can develop technology, a lot of things you can do um, without all the excruciating, uh, will this be approved? And, you know, all the approval process, they, they can do a lot faster uh, for cheaper. But the bad is private sector is not 
uh, obligated to report to anybody except their uh, shareholders. And if you're talking about going to mass, um, until we have uh, the governance issue sorted out, uh, like who is going to monitor, who is going to control, uh, who's, which law are they going to have to comply to? And there are the issue of ethics, you know, those have to be sorted out. So governments still have to sit together and decide on the governance of going to um, becoming an extraterrestrial uh, species. Uh, even going to the moon, I think we have sorted out all the uh, issues. So the next big thing at the moment is Mars, right? Mm. We want to put people on Mars. Uh, that's like our, it's our new moon. As a layperson, I know there are limitations to our tech, our technology, but I don't understand what those limitations are. You know, like what is holding us back from breaking that that barrier in space? Okay. First of all, it's about the rocketry. Uh, it's a lot different from us building a rocket to go to the International Space Station and to the moon. Uh, it's it's uh, many quantum leaps to be able to do that. Um, so there might be a new technology in the, in the near future, but I, I don't see it uh, coming uh, as yet. But apart from the rocketry, which all of us understand, is, um, you see, in order to get to wherever you want to go, Mars or the moon, uh, is the length of time you take to get there. Let's, let's calculate how long it would take us to get to Mars. Eh? Now, it, it, you know, your rocket will go around about 40,000 kilometers per hour. And with 300 million miles, it's about six to eight months to get from Earth to Mars. And even then, you are doing it at a very particular configuration of the orbits of Earth and Mars, which happens only every 26 months. So you have to choose a good time when you know uh, this is the, the most efficient and the most effective way of getting to Mars. In any case, firstly, how are our astronauts going to survive in space for the six to eight months. Uh, the issue here will be the psychology, the impact on the astronaut psychology. I think there's a lot to learn from this COVID-19 lockdown. You can, I think you can see how people cannot stand each other, you know, being with each other uh, for in a matter of weeks, let alone six to eight months. And on top of that, imagine yourself being in a capsule uh, like a bathroom, <laughs> not even, you know, a house uh, with a garden or a, a, an apartment. So imagine the psychological uh, impact of that. And we haven't studied that enough. Or maybe there are, but we haven't got uh, the... And there are technological problems uh, you can do that. Uh, you can deal with that. Either you put people in suspension, uh, suspension, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't have all the scientific and technological solutions to um, living in space with a team for six to eight months. So that's the one thing. The other is that uh, as you go out to space, you are bombarded by radiation. I think you must have heard people say that if you, uh, for every trip you uh, you take on an aeroplane, it's a few doses, it's like a few doses of x-rays. So imagine you're going to go out of the, the cocoon of, you know, benign environment uh, around the earth 
Now you're going out there where uh, we know how much radiation there is and that's a very, very dangerous um, atmosphere, uh, not atmosphere, uh, uh, environment. And then when you get to Mars, the problem is not resolved because Mars doesn't have the atmosphere that we have uh, to shield us from those uh, devastating radiation. And we don't have... Uh, enough information, science and technology to address that. Not only for human beings, but for our uh, computers. Your computers defined. Eh? Uh, so it's that radiation environment that we don't have the solution for. And then the third thing is the landing on Mars. Uh, the, the Chinese way or the UK way, the American way, the um, Russian way, the European way. You, you see, not everybody, not all countries have attempted to go to Mars have um, has succeeded in landing uh, on Mars because it's so difficult. Our current techno- science and technology poses limitations in the, in the ways that I mentioned. Um, you know, just localizing a bit, uh, where is Malaysia's place in all of this? You know, like Malaysians have been to space. Uh, we have sent people up there. Is space travel a kind of kingmaker for developing nations like ours, you think? Or is it not a priority because of how expensive it can be? Well, it doesn't have to be a kingmaker. Nobody makes a king because you uh, go to space. It's just what you emphasize on. Now, you know that we've had our Angkasawan program. You, you said so. In fact, I would say now, uh, clear, clearly and categorically, that one of the motivations I had um, in putting this forward uh, to the Prime Minister and, and of course the, the country at that time is that I wanted Malaysia to be seen as a country capable of uh, or with the capability and capacity to choose, uh, to go through the selection of an astronaut. It's not easy. And, you know, we went through, it was a very hard process for us. And that we have the wherewithal to think about what the person will do in space. We had a science program, cultural program, education program. So when the world looks at Malaysia, they say, you know what, Malaysians, there's, there's enough of them. Uh, that there is going to be a good candidate. And not only that, their government or their institutions are in in a position that they have the capacity and the capability to choose that astronaut, to be the first person to land on Mars, for instance, to be that first group of people to land on Mars. Um, And that's always been my dream, that the first group of humans that land on Mars shouldn't be an all-American team. Uh, but on the other hand, it would be so essential, so crucial that the representatives of the developing world be there. And if there's going to be a representative from the developing world, well, why not Malaysia? And we don't have to spend all that money. I mean, we went to the International Space Station. We never paid a single cent for the space station. Uh, we, we, in a sense, paid for the uh, launching and the, the training and the launching, uh, not by cash, but through an offsite, a military offset program. Yeah, but we, we have the capability, we have the resources to do that too. And um, I don't see why we cannot allocate some resources to, to this. It need not be five billion. No, of course not. It's a matter of how we negotiate with our partners. What elements do we want to undertake? You know, you know, people say that we should have a second 
uh, angkasawan in space. And the first thing I ask is, yeah, but what does this second angkasawan, angkasawan want to do? If it's just a matter of doing uh, more of what uh, uh, Shane Muzaffa did, why the hell do you want to do that? We have to do something different, you know. We have uh, science we want to experiment on. We have a technology we want to demonstrate, stuff like that. Uh, no point um, going back to what uh, Shane Musafar did. We must advance in our steps in order to justify going to space again. And I think putting ourselves out there to say uh, we would be happy to get involved in the selection of an astronaut going to Mars, uh, that's the very minimum we can do once the, once the call is out there. So this might be a very ignorant question, but how does space travel impact other fields of science like medicine? Like, you know, when probes and robots are sent into space, are they simply studying the nature of space and planets like Mars or, or you know, surface of the moon? Or, or is there more going on? If you go to the NASA website, you'll see their spin-offs. They, every year, they come up with a voluminous publication on their spin-offs. Uh, from their space uh, space program, you know your your flying pan, the Teflon on your flying pan, uh, the the material from which you built your tent because it is uh, heat resistant, uh, the way you monitor people's hearts, um, all kinds of things. I, I as I said, um, you just Google <laughs> uh, sp- uh, uh, spinoffs from the space program. Uh, there is no end to it. And so, uh, in fact, in, at one stage, the Americans said that for every dollar they put into the space program, they get $22 back in terms of spin-offs and, uh, and the businesses that the spin-offs uh, generate. I don't know what the numbers are today, uh, but I, I, the impact on the rest of the world is huge if you care to learn about it. Okay, so if you had to guess... Um, in 2031, who's the first person to set up camp on Mars? Who's going to be the first one there? You know, on the moon, I wouldn't be surprised if it would be China. They have a lot of motivation and um, a lot of money to throw at it. Huh? And in fact, uh, they're in building and setting up the International Space Station, they've gone very fast, uh, much faster than the Americans had. Uh, you know, uh, did but of course uh, it's because you know you you can look back and see what the mistakes the Americans did and therefore you can make yourself you can go faster and and cheaper as well. So with the moon, I'm not surprised that uh, China might get there, but with Mars, I think the Americans will still win uh, the race because uh, there's so much going on in in uh, the US right now in building those humongous rockets that will that you need in order to go to Mars and the US the government together with their private sector yes between them i think they have the the means the capacity everything uh, to go to Mars soon um of course, now you're an expert in the field uh, and, and you've spoken many times about the importance of looking up, looking to the stars, looking to space. 
of having that curiosity to explore, right? So what are you seeing in terms of technological advancements that's exciting you right now? Like, you know, what tech makes you go, okay, you know, that could be a game changer. Like, like this could take us to places that we've never been before. All right. So uh, to me, I, I follow what Elon Musk is uh, trying to do, you know, all his rocket maneuverings, because the first thing is about rocketry. Unless you have the right rockets, you're not going to get out there. So I, I think that is uh, very fast advancements in that area. Also, in uh, a lot of research has gone into uh, um, long-term isolated living in space. I mean, uh, Europe, the US, I think even China and, and Russia have come up with experiments on how to put a few people in a certain um, uh, house, sort of house, and get them to generate everything by themselves. You know, it's like being in, in outer space. There's some work there, uh, not as much success as yet, so not so much, not so much excitement there, you know. Uh, but I have seen um, competitions amongst architects. Um, what sort of house would you design on Mars? So which means that this idea has gone down to the public. They're thinking about what sort of uh, house, how they need to grow plants, how they need to get water, how they need to build a house, how they need to do 3D print, um, all of that. Uh, people, more and more people are putting in whatever they have to do the table. And I believe as that becomes more and more diversified, um, more and more people coming to the table, uh, our advancements will be faster. Okay. Um, Professor Maslan, I, I can't do this interview without asking this next question and I saved it for last. We're seeing footage being released by the U.S. government, by the Pentagon of all places, uh, of UFOs and aerial objects that they cannot identify. Will we be able to discover any sort of life out there within the next decade, you think? Yeah, well, uh, the scientists in the U.S. will tell you they are very close to uh, discovering life on Mars. Not life like you and me, but, you know, uh, maybe unicellular life, but still uh, life of some sort. Because there have been hints of uh, methane being produced. Uh, and we know that there's water uh, on Mars, um, flowing water. So normally when there's flowing water, uh, there is um, an, an opportunity for life to develop. Further afield, we know of um, um, moons, moons around um, the other big planets like Saturn and Jupiter um, with, uh, with surfaces that show that there's a lot of liquid, liquid hydrogen, liquid uh, methane or even liquid water. And you know when there is liquid, there is uh, capacity uh, for life to evolve. I am very optimistic that unicellular life or life like bacteria, uh, we might come across them uh, soonish, but you know, intelligent life, oh, I, do, I, I cannot hazard a guess that. Because there are so many issues surrounding uh, civilization or intelligence uh, that it, it needs another long conversation.
follow Futurescapes on Spotify, the BFM app, BFM website, or wherever you get your podcasts from so that you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. We'll be talking about stuff like autonomous cars, deep fake music, or the future of music, and everything in the year 2031 and beyond. In the meantime, here's a clip of an interview that CNN did with Elon Musk back in 2004, in which he talks about the possibility of space travel. Keep in mind that this was 17 years ago and almost everything that he says and he mentions has already come true. This has been Futurescapes on BFM 89.9. You know, you have the, the the obvious existing business of of satellites of one kind or another, um, which I think, with an improvement in, in space transportation costs, will enjoy an increase in the business, but modest. Um, and then I think you've got space tourism or space adventure, uh, whatever you want to call it. Uh, that I think is likely to be the the biggest driver. Um, and then long term, I think you've got. Assuming that we fulfill the president's vision and we establish a moon base and then go on and establish a Mars base, I think uh, supplying those bases is a huge, huge business. Fundamentally, the way we help NASA is by lowering the cost of access to space, allowing us to do more interesting things for, for a given budget. In fact, I think what we're doing is critical to the future of NASA. Um, at, at the current prices that NASA pays for space transportation, I don't think we'll be able to achieve anything interesting in space. Well, actually, I, I view all of the, the gov government agencies with an interest in space as customers. So I view NASA as a customer, certainly um, the Air Force, uh, Naval Research Lab, National Reconnaissance Organization, um, you know, all the NASA is certainly, uh, you know, somebody we would like to be uh, necessarily a customer of ours. Uh, we're starting off with uh, transportation of, of satellites to orbit, or cargo, you could call it cargo. Um, so, but we're starting off with, with unmanned uh, transportation, um, and when, as we prove out the reliability, our intention is to move to uh, human transportation as well. However, what I, what I think we're beginning to see is the dawn of a new era of space exploration, uh, but one that is uh, driven by uh, commercial uh, companies uh, as much, if not more, than by, by government. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.